1: During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a podcast I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic. So keep an ear out mid-show when I tell you all about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the so-called crisis on the border involving Haitians attempting to cross into the United States. Some say it's a crisis the U.S. is dealing with. Others say it's inappropriate to call human beings a crisis fair point. We humbly suggest that these human beings, not the U.S., are experiencing a crisis, which seems worthwhile to point out, and it's the U.S. which is actually exacerbating that crisis. And then you got Biden, who's following Trump's policies, creating a political crisis for himself, but in the scales of justice, all things being considered, that doesn't weigh too heavily. Clips today are from Consider This, The Majority Report, In The Thick, Al Jazeera English, What Next?, on the media, and the United States of anxiety.
2: The U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, resigned from his position on Thursday. In a letter, he said he will not, quote, be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees. Robin,
3: a fleet of state vehicles being used to try to stop those migrants from crossing into Texas, you can in see Texas, you state state right
2: Texas, state troopers have formed a miles-long steel wall of patrol cars along the border we, to discourage people from crossing.
4: Right now, a lot of manpower is here to try
3: to get control of this border.
2: And earlier this week, Homeland Security Secretary, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas had this to say to the Haitian migrants. If you come to the United States illegally, you will be returned. Mayorkas spoke in the afternoon sun just outside the border in Del Rio. Your journey will not succeed and you will be endangering your life and your family's lives. These policies were already facing pushback and then shocking images from the border started to spread on social media. Images of border patrol on horseback are causing controversy. Video shows border agents using a whipping motion to push back migrants at the river.
3: The local president... What we actually saw with them using long reins on their horses and flicking them um, towards
2: people. John Holman is a reporter with Al Jazeera, who is based in Mexico, and he witnessed the scene firsthand.
3: So it's really tense scenes um, there on the river. That was when the men were trying to get back across with food and water um, for their families.
2: They had crossed back over to Mexico in search of groceries and were confronted on their way back to the U.S. side. The Department of Homeland Security has said it will investigate the situation.
3: After that happened, that sort of flashpoint, that tension, then the Border Patrol agents, there were a lot of photographers and a lot of cameras there, and they may have suddenly become aware of that, let people pass through. And we we haven't seen any flashpoints of that nature at that
2: point uh, since then. Holman spoke with NPR's Audie Cornish this week, along with Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald, who has also been on the ground in Del Rio.
5: Jacqueline, what do we know about how so many Haitians ended up arriving at the border so quickly? I mean, did they essentially get through Mexico somehow undetected?
6: Honestly, I don't think that it was quickly. First of all, we have to remember that a lot of these, if not the majority of these people, are individuals who were in other countries in Latin America. They were living in Chile, they were living in Brazil, where the situation They were having a hard time making a living. And what they have told me when I spoke to them is a lot of them came to Mexico with the hope of being able to live in Mexico. But they've had a very difficult time getting work permits, um, finding jobs, even finding a place to live. And so this is a community that, you know, operates through word of mouth. So people started saying, hey, Ciudad Acuña is open this port is
5: open. John, it's been reported that Mexican authorities are busing people away from the border. So what does that mean for the community of people that have gathered here?
3: Yeah, what's official is the governor of Coahuila has said that a flight's actually left with people back to Tapachula that's in deep south Mexico right on the border with Guatemala and he's basically saying if you want to be in our country you've got to process your papers there and he's also said that he's in talks with U.S. authorities so there's obviously coordination going on here between Mexico and the U.S. and that's something that's been happening for some time. Mexico's been stopping in Tapachula on that southern border people getting out and getting through. My colleague was actually there uh, just last week and he said There's a lot, thousands of people, a lot of them from Haiti also, they're in Tapachula at the moment. And Mexican authorities have sort of got that city circled off in the south to try and prevent them getting further up
6: can I just say that Tapachula was brought up, everyone I spoke to, every migrant, they raised the issue of Tapachula and that the difficulties that they face in Tapachula, which led them to Ciudad Acuna. That is how all of these Haitians have ended up there because of what's been happening in Tapachula on top of the difficulties of being able to get legal documents in Mexico.
5: So Jacqueline, when it comes to the Biden administration's response here, trying to send some sort of message not to cross the border. Um, what is getting through? Right
6: now, um, it's not necessarily getting through. People are still treating it as rumors that they hear that the US is supporting people. I think as the days go on, this message will start to really trickle down. What I found in Mexico was that people heard heard it and so they were contemplating whether or not to take the risk. But as videos are starting to circulate out of Haiti and people are starting to hear interviews with returning migrants, it is starting to maybe get to Mexico, but we know that there are still people, migrants who are trying to make it across
5: Of the Haitians who have been flown home, are they returning with the message? What has that return been like? Because I don't know how a country like Haiti that is going through, you know, the political turmoil, the natural disaster, the aftermath of that can like absorb people being returned.
6: The returnees are angry. On the one hand, they're insisting that the border was open. They don't understand you know, why they were detained. They are complaining about the conditions in detention. They are blaming the Haitian government for quote unquote signing deportation papers. To me, there's a lack of understanding that they crossed illegally, irregularly into the United States. They really are under the impression that what they did was sanctioned. So right there you see the shortcoming in terms of what the Biden administration is trying to do. At the same time, we do see what Secretary Mayorkas is saying in terms of the misinformation. A number of people have said that they ended up there because people said, hey, if I had a child in Chile, I can get TPS in the United States. Or somebody says Blinken said to come. Uh, Where people are getting this information, it's unclear, but they were guided by this idea that they would be welcomed into the United States.
7: The horrible scenes that we have seen uh, down in Texas with these Haitian migrants uh, who have been now just expelled from the country under Title 42, uh, which is uh, a, a rule that the Trump administration employed to basically just get rid of um, uh, people seeking some type of refuge, asylum, migration to this country without any type of process and so we've got all that to get to and, and more frankly and um let's, and, and we shall and we will yeah let's do um here's jen saki now we shot we played some of the um images yesterday of these um border patrol agents riding horses as and there are up to fifteen thousand haitian immigrants who, Asylum seekers, I feel like is better. Well, they're not being that we don't know. Right. I mean, because they're not even being processed, but they are. um We do know that Haiti has suffered two massive natural disasters and a uh, political upheaval in the past two months
8: one would think that would qualify you for asylum uh, status regardless of the united states very uh, active role in that political destabilization historically
7: right and and, and at the very least you'd get temporary protected status yeah right i mean that's what this is for but it the is pandemic well um and so we have they 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 ended up basically um crossing the border we have images yesterday of of some Haitians who had crossed the border to get food in Mexico and then came back to feed their families and were basically corralled by these horseback um, uh, customs and patro- border patrol agents who were uh, yelling at them that they come from a asshole uh, country. And um, here is Jen Saki on uh, CBS's This Morning, with um talking about and trying to justify those those scenes
9: into that. People may be eligible for that. But right now, we also have to implement our laws uh, at the border. We also want to protect people, both in that community, but also migrants. One of the challenges, as we're all facing a pandemic here, is the gathering of so many people. We're still implementing Title 42, which means that we are going to send people out of the country who come in uh, as we implement that. A
2: a COVID safety protocol. Exactly. Ah. Did you say that it's possible that that extension that applies to Haitians already here could apply to those coming across the border? Well, now. Tony,
9: it's already been extended uh, because of the turmoil on the ground. It was earlier this summer. That's something that the Secretary of Homeland Security and Secretary of State do look into. But again, as we look to this, the, the photos, not just the ones you referenced, but, but of all of these families and people under the bridges, we wanted to also take steps to implement our laws and to protect a lot of them from the spread of COVID as well.
7: And and, and, and let's be clear here. When she cites Title 42, I, I don't know if any at any point during that, uh, that broadcast they made a clear that a judge basically enjoined the administration from using title 42 five days ago and the biden administration then is on appeal so this is uh something that's very likely to be struck down we don't know for sure but is is dubious at best and certainly when donald trump had initiated i mean this is one of those opportunities where jen saki could say the donald trump initiated title 42 mm-hmm. the other thing is is that according to reporting by uh, julia ainsley nbc reporter in an effort to speed up deportations, she said on twitter last night ice is no longer testing for covid before flights so they're on one hand claiming that we're getting people out we're, we're deporting these people it's not even de- deportation right because there's no process we are expelling these uh people who are coming from a devastating situation in their home country ostensibly to protect them from covid so what we're doing is we are gathering them up we're putting them on planes we're not testing anybody and then putting them back into a situation where there is far less services for covid i mean if you really want to protect these people from covid everybody should be getting a uh, a shot and everybody should be getting tested and they should be allowed to we should find a place for them we should start to process them in this country i mean it's just un uh, unbelievable and it, it it couldn't be more inhumane
8: i'm on the cdc website which vaccines are required for us immigration mumps measles rubella polio hepatitis a hepatitis b just a variety of ones i'm i'm listing some of them um that are required for us immigration they could just give these migrants or i should say asylum seekers i know that the classification um i just want to be as specific as possible um they 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 can just give them the one shot covid vaccine right there if they're that concerned about their safety but it's just like this disingenuous kind of way to use fears about the pandemic to shut down the conversation when what they're saying there is well, they're, they could be infected with COVID, right? It's a little downstream from, aren't they just kind of dirty people from different countries? So mm-hmm. she's just using a more distilled version of that incredibly racist argument while using the racist policy of Donald Trump as a cover for their own politics when they ran on how cruel is Donald Trump to immigrants? How cruel is Donald Trump to people at the border? It, it's... And no pushback by CBS. I mean, you wonder why she goes on the morning show for that kind of cover up, right? Not to besmirch all morning shows, but that's kind of the deal.
10: Let's get into the hypocrisy. You know, it's a word that is being used a lot this week. President Biden campaign promise. I mean, we can call up the clips. We can call up the receipts when he was running. He promised to approach immigration with fairness and humanity. But at the same time, there are still Trump era policies in- being enacted, specifically Title 42, which basically expels refugees or people looking for asylum under the guise of public health. Okay, so hold right? on, take a pause here.
11: Yeah. Because again, remembering that Joe Biden has been around for a long time mm-hmm. in the 1980s, and what was the epidemic that we were facing then? HIV and AIDS. Mm. And who was being targeted? Who were we being told were the purveyors of HIV? Yes, AIDS? Haitians. He- I remember this. I was in high school. I was a journalist.
10: I actually had a Haitian classmate in high school. Like he would tell me that about his family. He was living in New York. I remember Exacto.
11: that. So then again, for Joe Biden to be just like, we're going to continue to play the same game, which is that Haitians are bringing covid are you kidding me
10: right and like you just said i mean it's anti-immigrant it's anti-black tactics they're nothing new all you have to do is go through our feed on in the thick right and just start picking out our you know our examples of the u.s's long history of imperialism destabilizing countries around the world and haiti in particular is one of those countries and we also talked about this you know You just mentioned the 80s, this targeting of Haitian migrants to the Reagan administration. I remember they were intercepting refugees trying to cross the sea, but that actually happened also under Carter. Right.
11: Maria, do you remember that when that was happening? It was like Vietnam and then Haiti. Right. Right. So I write about this in Once I Was You, which is the first televised refugee crisis was Mm. the Vietnamese people. Yeah. How were they talked about by the mainstream media? Our colleagues in the Washington Post and New York Times, ABC News, how did they refer to them? So I'm about to use what I consider is a slur. So trigger warning. They called them boat people. Then you had the next televised, right? Because there have been previous refugee crises because the refugees are reading the propaganda about come to this country. We love the refugees. And then they're like, well, we did it, but it's false propaganda. And so then Mm -hmm. Cuban people and Haitian people in the 1980s, it was a massive story. Again, the conditions under which they were being held were again worse than prison, like so bad that there was a riot. This was in a detention facility in Georgia. They lit the place on fire. So what am I saying? There is a long history. And what's a through line? Who was a senator
10: from Delaware in the 70s and is now president of the United States? Let's just be honest. Because even in the Reagan administration, what happened was they would intercept refugees trying to cross over by sea. And then they were either turned back around or held at a detention center. So, yes, detention centers have been around people. And actually, this is the part where... I'm having major issues as a journalist Mm -hmm. because you have these Biden officials now saying and, you know, and these are top officials. This is Vice President Harris. This is not some, you know, immigration deputy secretary here. Right. They're saying that they're horrified by the images of Border Patrol agents attacking refugees. Yet at the same time, what's the message that we're hearing from Jen Psaki? You know, the White House press secretary this week during her remarks this is not the time to come to the United States. And Maria, I needed to just share this clip. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorcas, born in Cuba. Just going to give you a little context there. This is, you know, when you think about the Cuban migrant story, this was what he said in an interview with MSNBC's Nicole Wallace on Thursday.
4: We are dedicated to um, and invariably dedicated to building a safe orderly, and humane immigration system. The, the reality is that the authority that we are employing now is not a matter of immigration policy. It is a public health imperative. It is the authority of the Centers for Disease Control in light of the fact that that we are in the midst of a pandemic and the rise in the Delta variant makes that compellingly clear. We have lost more than 600,000 lives in this country alone in the midst of a pandemic that has gripped the world. It is critical that people understand that the authority that we are exercising is not a matter of immigration policy. It is a matter of public health as issued by the CDC, to protect the migrants themselves, our personnel, local communities, and the American public.
11: Okay, so great. So, you now, Alejandro Mayorcas from Cuba, that your same family yep. would have been told, oh no, you can't come from Cuba because you all have some kind of disease, right? You are now employing that same bullshit that we have called out historically and said, this is unjust, it is inhuman. And you are now saying that you exactly. are absolving yourself of your responsibility as a leader, as the head of the Department of Homeland, you are absolving yourself and saying basically, uh, you know, go talk Not to the problem. CDC. Yeah.
10: yeah, it's Title go 42. Go talk to Dr. Yeah.
11: Fauci. This is sickening. It is heartbreaking to have a child yeah. of refugees himself Be saying and this is not about immigration policy, this is public health because can't you see them they're all dirty because they're black? That is some bullshit. Also, let me just finish with this. You should say and because we care about humanity, we are actually going to bring them here and we're going to help them battle COVID because we're gonna get them vaccinated, we are going to help them because that's we No no, que no jodan, que no That was the point that I
10: was gonna make. If it's a public health issue, We need to completely shift our attitude as a country, because if we are in the middle of a pandemic, isn't it our duty to help people? Isn't it our duty to be like, yes, refugees? Yes, we're going to test you. You know, we're going to put you in places that are safe and we're going to vaccinate you.
11: But he said the first word he said you heard was we're all about safety and we're working for a humane system. And here we are.
10: But this is what I'll leave you before we move on, because I think the conversation about journalism and the coverage and the fact that he was allowed to say that with no pushback. I'm just, you know, and one thing you should note, because, you know, this whole public health issue, if it's a friggin public health issue, then make it a public health issue, because I'm citing a report from NBC News. The United States is not even testing, you know, Haitian refugees for covid-19 before sending them back to Haiti on planes. Wow. So if this is a public health issue. Then make it a public health issue.
11: By the way, Julio, those flights are packed. Yeah. There was video of one of the Haitians who was deported talking about how they are chained. I put that in the frontline documentary. We showed the chains. They chained them hand, feet around the waist, completely militarized. Also, the special envoy appointed to Haiti by the Biden administration just resigned, saying he cannot stand by and be tied to an administration that is allowing this kind of inhumanity to occur. So again, I say, where is, what's his name? Sean, the Hollywood actor dude. (laughs) Sean. Where is Bill Clinton? You know, where are the people like Michelle Brunet, who left the Women's Refugee Commission? Where is Julissa Reynoso, who is Afro-Dominican? Where are they stamping down and saying no more? she is in the White House. Where? Well, actually, she's now ambassador, That's right. ¿verdad? Where? Where is their anguish? Here we are again
1: with me telling you about a recent episode of Unfucking the republic This should be old news to you because you should have subscribed and started listening already, but just in case, here it goes. In my opinion... UNFTR really shines when they take on a topic that they have a serious chance of f***ing up. It's like when they did the episode on Native Genocide and I thought careful careful and then I was thrilled when they pulled it off. Well most recently they took on the task of explaining the ever-evolving process of working toward full LGBTQ equality and I thought careful but As always, I think they did not f*** it up, which is pretty high praise for a straight guy running a podcast to give another straight guy running a different podcast who's talking about a discussion we both recognize as not really being our discussion to have, but to listen in on and in our small capacity lift up. And if that's not convincing, I don't know what is. So check it out. You'll be taken through the history of the movement, the importance of language and representation, and all the while being reminded that this is all happening right now in real time as we speak, which is why it's important to keep an open mind and to keep up with the progress as it's happening. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcast by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link. In our show notes.
12: They call them cites, large properties subdivided into small quarters where one or more families live cramped together, often sharing a bathroom with up to a dozen other families. They're the only option for many Haitian migrants in Chile, like Jean Sanafé. The kitchen doesn't work, the bathroom too. But it's difficult for us to rent here. And Haiti, my children each have their own room. I would never bring them here. Difficile. Chile has the largest Haitian migrant community outside of the United States, and it's public knowledge that they're exploited by unscrupulous landlords. And now with the coronavirus pandemic, they're being discriminated further. A few weeks ago, this cité with 88 rooms became nationwide news. Health authorities moved the Haitian residents to a special quarantine area with better facilities. But first, the results of their coronavirus tests were published on the municipality's webpage, violating a patient's right to confidentiality. The news spread like wildfire. Even before the cameras arrived, the neighbors began throwing rocks and hurling insults at the Haitians because a few of them had been confirmed to be carrying coronavirus. Now they tell us that they feel even more discriminated and vulnerable than ever. The fear of the virus has only increased the stigmatization of Haitians, says Ralph Jean-Baptiste, who works as a community translator. The community is very angry and upset. If they'd been from Europe, from Germany, this would not have happened. Ralph is always dressed impeccably because he says it helps to counter constant disrespect of blacks by Chileans.
13: People say, get out, you blackie. There is cruel discrimination here that we can't ignore.
12: It's made worse because many Haitian migrants don't speak Spanish and don't know their rights. With very precarious living
1: conditions, it's even more difficult for them to survive in a pandemic. They're charged extortionate rents, which many can't afford. The virus doesn't discriminate, but we do.
12: The governor of Santiago's metropolitan region agrees that many migrants are living in inhumane conditions. But when we asked why authorities haven't stopped landlords from renting unsanitary and overcrowded living quarters, he blamed the mayors. The truth is that authorities have constantly turned a blind eye to a sanitary and human rights dilemma that is punishing those who came here for a better life as never before. You see a newman Al Jazeera, Santiago.
14: Jonathan Katz is about to put all of the United States on blast over its treatment of Haiti. So let me just come in here and say, Americans are also really generous. We've got big fix-it energy. We funneled millions to Port-au-Prince when its ramshackle buildings came down after the 2010 earthquake. But Jonathan, he thinks that big fix-it energy can be problematic if you don't spend enough time considering just what you're fixing or why. Like, maybe you're feeling compelled to send cash to Haiti right now. If you're an American who's sitting here thinking like, okay, well, I guess should I give money to the Red Cross? Like, would you do that?
13: No, <laughs> that, that, that I wouldn't do because that, that doesn't really help anybody because the Red Cross doesn't address the, the root causes of the problems in Haiti and, and in fact, has a history of, of adding to, to the root causes. You know, we, I mean, specifically as Americans, have played a major role in causing Haiti's poverty, like a direct role in 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 making Haiti as poor as it is today so i would say that like if americans want to get involved in fixing haitian poverty that that is possible but it it means first and foremost addressing the inequities and and the the extraction and just all of the the roiling that we have done as americans in the past you can't just come in and say, it's day zero, you know, Haiti is, is in its natural state of poverty, and I, brave American, am going to fix it. It really takes a, a, a lot more digging and a lot more self-awareness in that.
14: Is it worth looking at the 2010 quake as an example of like, here's where you see where the will is there, but the resources aren't? And when the resources come in, they come in in the wrong way.
13: Oh, 100%. One of the Funniest examples that, that I remember from 2010 was that the Fiji Water Company, <laughs> distribu- they, they they donated water that they flew in from Fiji. If you look at a map of the world, you'll see how far Fiji is from
14: Haiti. Yeah, that seems like a little extra. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. You
13: know, Haiti's also an island. Haiti has water. It just needs, you know, and it has some water treatment. It just needed to stand up that that amount of water treatment. It didn't need to be like, you know, this like spring water from the South Pacific. But when people remember, if people even now remember the the quake 11 years ago, they often remember, you know, that there were these sort of big totemic figures floated about money, often in in the sentence or the question, where did the money go? And if you actually look back at at that money, first of all, much more was pledged than was ever delivered. And the money that was spent, the vast majority of it, never went to Haiti, kind of just went in circles from, from one hand to the next in the donor countries. One of the biggest figures was uh, half a billion dollars went to uh, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense. And the point of that money was to fund a military response that did do some things. I mean, the, the U.S. military helped repair the the port in Port-au-Prince, but the vast majority of that money, the vast majority of time and resources, were there to prevent social unrest and to essentially keep people from leaving Haiti and coming to the United States. Hmm. The risk of all of those things happening were extremely overblown. But, you know, the vast majority of U.S. soldiers, Marines, airmen, coasties that went, uh, never left their ships. They never never set set foot on Haitian soil.
14: So they were there to do a job that they didn't really need to be doing?
13: Exactly, exactly. So— you mentioned the Red Cross.
14: They also had a half billion dollars, exactly,
13: and and they spent it internally. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that they they pocketed it. It's just like this is how an organization works. Like they have people, they have to pay their salaries, they have to pay their travel, um, and then you know they bought like a bunch of hygiene kits, they bought a bunch of tarps, they they distributed those. But you know, a, 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 ver- a vanishingly tiny fraction of all of the money that that was spent or talked about or whatever. Ended up in the hands of Haitians. I mean, it was it was it was far less than one percent, and you know, much of that, you know, went to sort of you know, the, the Haitian elite. The vast majority of just ordinary Haitians saw nothing. They got a tarp, they got whatever, they got a t-shirt from an NGO. Maybe they got a bag of rice that lasted them, you know, a couple of weeks, and that was it. So they end up clearing the rubble themselves, repurposing it, and rebuilding their own homes. And the way that they rebuild their homes is as fragile and unsafe as it was before the the last uh, disaster struck.
14: Yeah. We talk about, you know, don't give a man a fish, teach him to fish sort of things. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is (laughs) what's happening in Haiti is the opposite of what we sort of tell each other we're supposed to do when folks are in a bad situation. Yeah, that particular
13: phrase often comes up. It gets everything backwards. Haitians are by necessity the most self-sufficient, <laughs> creative people, um, that, you know, you will ever meet in your life. This is a country where everything that you do, you have to do for yourself. If your house catches fire, and I have been in a fire in Haiti, so I can tell you this firsthand. If your house catches fire, you're going to put it out yourself. There's no fire department that's gonna come and 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 take care of it for you. If if the road is in disrepair, which all roads are in Haiti all the time, you're not gonna wait for like you know the state construction crew to come fix it. You're gonna go and you know use whatever little money you have. And buy a, you know, like a a bag of cement um, or a bag of any kind of road-filling material. And then you'll sit out in the road and you will fix the pothole yourself and just sort of flag down passing cars and ask them to, like, you know, chip in to help you pay for for the bag of cement. These kinds of things happen all the time. If any country in the world is full of people who could teach us how to to fish, Hmm. it's Haiti. The problem isn't a lack of know-how. The problem isn't a, a lack of desire or, or will. It is really a, a lack of, of material resources. But understanding why those resources are lacking in Haiti is necessary in order to figure out how to fix that problem.
0: On July 7th, Haiti's President Jovenel Moise was assassinated in his home.
4: The horror in Haiti, the First Lady also shot. Authorities in Haiti said the assassins were foreign mercenaries, who had posed as U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agents in the raid on his home.
0: The question of who was behind the assassination is still an open one, but Moise had his share of enemies.
4: For the last 18 months, the 53-year-old had been ruling the country by decree, without Parliament. The opposition accused him of corruption and ties to organized crime.
0: In the wake of Moise's assassination, international media coverage followed a time-worn template to describe events in the island nation, emphasizing instability. Haiti has been in more than its usual share
12: of chaos recently. Haiti is a country in chaos, where acts of everyday life have come to pose a mortal risk. And violence. (laughs)
2: Life in Haiti
15: seems to have returned to normal, but the normal Haitians are used to is violence.
0: It's a pattern with old roots.
4: Here is au Prince, Haiti, in 1915, chief city of an island nation torn by internal troubles. United States Marines land in Haiti to battle Haitian bandits threatening destruction of American properties. And native bandits
0: quickly... Time and again, after a coup, an earthquake, an assassination. The world's first black republic is flattened into a narrative of perpetual chaos. Haitians turned into desperate victims in need of generous international aid.
1: We're their largest donor in terms of assistance of all kinds. Spare a thought for our brothers and sisters in Haiti tonight. They are really staring into the abyss right now. Haiti, of course, an absolutely beleaguered country.
0: Natalie Serra, co-founder and lead editor of Woi magazine, a Haitian online media project, says this trend removes essential context.
6: And so Haitians have been sounding the alarm about the culture of violence that has been allowed to reign under this current regime and how dispensable life has become and how unacceptable people's quality of life have become, that massacres have become commonplace.
0: Sarin is referring to the anti-corruption pro-democracy movements that had been mobilizing against Moïse since shortly after he came to power. Among other things, calling for accountability after a $2 billion fund, earmarked to build Haitian infrastructure and social programs, disappeared into thin air under Moise's watch. Protests peaked this February, when Moise refused to step down at the end of his term. But, Saran says, these pro-democracy protests didn't make international headlines in the way that similar protests in Hong Kong or Cuba did, and they didn't get the political attention either. It's not politically convenient for the United States to make a story of these movements
6: because the United States government has bipartisan support of this current regime. These
0: guys were basically handpicked by the U.S. government. In fact, Haiti's history is marked by U.S. invasion, occupation, and election meddling. And as of last month, the meddling continues.
5: In the wake of Moise's assassination on July the 7th, a core group of foreign nations backed Ariel Henry to take the reins as Haiti's new prime minister.
0: And so, a cycle. Whenever a Haitian crisis pops up on our radar, TV pundits rush to play catch-up. Here's Conan O'Brien mocking the practice on his show in 2018.
10: To understand today's Haiti, you need to know its history. This should only take a minute
4: and 23 seconds.
0: Indeed, it's much easier to reduce Haiti to a soundbite. You've no doubt heard it before as a phrase so ubiquitous the poet Jean-Claude Martineau calls it Haiti's famous last name. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere.
3: Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. It is the poorest country in the Western
0: Hemisphere. It means it's black. It is incapable of self-governance. Gina Athena Ulysse is a professor of feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz and the author of Why Haiti Needs New Narratives. It takes Haiti and places
15: it in its own category, right? So what is happening in Haiti is unlike anything that's happening anywhere else in the world. When we hear Haiti is the quote-unquote poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, it tells us, absolutely nothing. It doesn't tell us, for example, that there's extreme wealth there. It doesn't tell us that there's a class system, a very entrenched class system there. It doesn't tell us there are forces that have developed to render what was once the most profitable colony in the Caribbean to become the quote-unquote poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere.
0: What are the things that should be well known about Haiti before we seek to tell, you know, the recent story of tragedy or unrest.
15: Haiti paid a big price in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. Haiti conquered three major European armies, declared itself a sovereign country. And one of the first things that was written in the Haitian constitution is that any person that lands in Haiti who is Black will be free at a time when the rest of the world was engaged in slavery, was benefiting from slavery. So Haiti was isolated as a result of that. Part of that history is understanding the impact that the American occupation, for example, has had on Haiti from 1915 to 1934. And it was the American government that actually instituted the Haitian police. In the late 60s and 70s, the United States supported the dictatorship. I actually want to stay away from thinking about these big historical moments, because I think there's a way when we talk about Haiti, we focus on what has become a brief timeline of Haiti, and here are the key moments we need to pay attention to. They tend to be moments of, quote-unquote, upheaval.
0: You're saying that we cherry-pick, or maybe, I suppose, tragedy-pick the news out of Haiti. We only turn our lens to the country when there's violence or suffering or a crisis going on, and that, in turn, distorts how we view those events you're a writer, and I was really interested in the appetite for Haiti stories. I pitched
15: a story and somebody said to me, oh, no, 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 we don't have time for this right now. Why don't you just come back? The next time there's a crisis, we can get you to do something else. I was like, wow. Clearly this person is not going to be interested in a non-crisis story. It erases the humans who are living with this. They seen as super resilient right? Or the mm-hmm. fact that, oh, well, they're Haitians. They're used to violence. Actually, no, they're not.
0: In your book, you refer to a particularly salient moment in Haitian earthquake coverage that happened on CNN. Can you describe that? That was a painful moment when
15: Anderson Cooper was interviewing Penn Hall.
3: I mean, one of the ladies that I met today, she said her five-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old were crushed by the, by the building when she was away. And when I asked her, "Well, did you have time to bury it before you're leaving?" and she simply says, "Jete, jete," I threw, I threw them away.
12: She said, her, "She threw her kids away."
3: She just tossed her kids away.
1: I said, "Why don't you Haitians cry?" She said, "There's no point. They're dead already. Mm-hmm. That's over
3: and done with."
10: I think there's been generations of suffering in this on this island, I and mean, we know there have, you know, from dictatorships and, and killings at night, and, and people who have no power really have absolutely no power, and there's this kind of resignation almost at times uh, of people just kind of throw up their shoulders and say, you know what, this is the way it's always been. And I think that's
1: part of this, the, the, the explanation. I can't believe that's the whole part of the situation. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine a mother saying in any culture, I threw them away? Yeah.
15: How could you not recognize... That's something this unbelievable, this shocking, right? It was a few seconds and the entire world changed. Someone is traumatized. But you describe them as non-human. And if you're black, you know your humanity is always in question.
0: Well, you've written really beautifully that Haitians are, and I'm quoting you, portrayed historically as fractures, as fragments, bodies without minds, heads without bodies, or roving spirits. So when the media needs quotes or analysis, who is speaking for them?
15: The experts are usually white men or white women here and there. And then the voice of experience is the Haitian, as though Haitians themselves are not capable of analysis. Guess what? They can speak for themselves. Haiti has new narratives, but no one is actually listening to what people in Haiti are saying because the voices in Haiti that have always mattered are the voices of the rich, are the voices of the people who are able to pay lobbyists and the people considered to be the more capable ones. No one wants to hear from a quote-unquote peasant or grassroots organization.
1: Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention. And unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out, so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance, because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said... Nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong.
13: So Haiti's real claim to fame in the world is that it is the only country ever born out of a successful revolution by enslaved people. It was a French colony called Saint-Domingue, and the enslaved people who were brought there from Africa um, between 1791 and 1804 rose up, overthrew slavery, defeated uh, the most powerful army in the world, Napoleon's army, and made themselves free in, in 1804. And for that, they were rewarded with exclusion and exploitation by powers, uh, many of whom especially the United States, uh, were still practicing slavery and did not want this example of a self-freed people um, reaching their own enslaved population. They feared it. Yes. And that is a major theme of American history um, leading up all the way to our civil war. There's talk about sort of another Haiti happening um, all throughout the the 19th century.
14: Weren't Haitians also compelled to pay back? The people who had enslaved them?
13: Exactly. So France's biggest response was in 1825, King Charles X sent over some gunboats and said, I got a great offer for you guys. It's an offer you can't refuse. Either you pay us back for your freedom, for the land that you and your, your fathers and mothers were enslaved on. If you do that, we will give you diplomatic recognition, which is absolutely important. And if you don't, we're going to reinvade and bombard you. And Haiti agreed to the deal, paid back every cent of the uh, uh, what ended up being 90 million gold francs, which is worth around probably you know $20 billion today. And they paid all of it back. The principal was paid back by the 1880s. And the last bit of interest was paid back in 1947.
14: What was the cost of paying all that back?
13: all of the resources, <laughs> that all of the customs revenues that, that could have been kept in Haiti and uh, used to build the country, to build infrastructure, ended up going to French planters. But more than that, in order to fill the hole in the Haitian budgets that was left by, by the fact that Haiti was prioritizing paying these these, their former you know, slave masters, they had to take out major loans. And some of those loans were taken out from U.S. banks. The most important U.S. bank that was involved in that uh, was the National Citibank of New York, now just known as Citibank or Citigroup. And in 1914, in order to ensure that Citibank and, and other Wall Street banks got their debt payments paid, The U.S. Marines came ashore, went into the Haitian Central Bank, and took out, they basically just stole half of Haiti's gold reserves, put them on a U.S. warship, and took them to Wall Street and put them in a vault there. That set Haitian politics into a complete tailspin, and in the summer of 1915, the last Haitian president who was ever assassinated until uh, Jovenel Moise was assassinated just a couple of weeks ago. He was assassinated in that context, which then was the pretext for a U.S. invasion. And it led to an occupation that lasted until 1934, which is the longest time that the United States has ever militarily occupied a foreign country until that record was broken um, by the United States and Afghanistan in in the past year.
14: A lot of Americans don't know this history, and I wonder if you think about the cost of that, because I I know you've written pretty squarely that, yes, Haiti has been subject to natural disasters, but maybe the biggest disaster that Haiti has suffered has been imperialism. But when you work with editors and try to just plainly say that, how do they react to that? It depends. (laughs) It depends on the publication.
13: Um, Often not well. Yes, and and it is because Americans on the whole, even educated Americans, don't know that these things have ever happened. These are just... These are just blank spots in American history books, and in and more importantly, in in the stories that that we tell ourselves. So so it sounds crazy, Marines coming ashore and just robbing the central bank. That sounds crazy. Yeah, like,
14: that's some piracy stuff right there.
13: Exactly. It sounds like you must be just making it up, or that you have an agenda. And I mean, I I, I do have an agenda, which is to tell
14: the truth. <laughs> You've drawn this parallel between how the United States has behaved in Haiti and more recently in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering if we can tease that out a little bit more here. Because, of course, at the same time that Haiti was suffering so many tragedies this summer, the United States was pulling out of Afghanistan with dramatically terrible outcomes for Afghan citizens who are concerned about their safety. So how would you compare and contrast these relationships between the United States and Haiti and the United States and Afghanistan?
13: You know, if you look at at the two in Haiti and in Afghanistan, the United States, you know, started with with an invasion to thwart uh, what it considered to be a you know a hostile militarized movement. Um, in Afghanistan, it was the Taliban. In Haiti, it was a uh, uh, basically guerrilla fighters uh, known as Cacos. We stood up. Up in governments in uh, Afghanistan with uh, Hamid Karzai, in in Haiti, Philippe uh, D'Artanov, who was just sort of this milquetoast senator who had no real constituency. D'Artanov's government had to depend on the Marines for protection. The Marines came up with the idea of, uh, instead of having just the Marines there, that we would stand up a Haitian client military that would basically, you know, police and fight the insurgents in our stead. In Haiti, that was called the Gendarmerie d'AIT. And the same thing has been tried in many other places since uh, that that the United States has invaded, occupied, et cetera. Um, in, in Afghanistan, of course, that's, uh, you know, the, the ANA, the, the, the Afghan uh, National Security Forces.
14: Do Afghanistan and Haiti also share this kind of NGO system where non-governmental organizations come in and try to do some of the work that you would traditionally think a government would do. And how did that impact both places?
13: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, Afghanistan is a great example of a country where um, the uh, United States blows it up, and then in order to rebuild it, assigns itself and its defense contractors um, and and humanitarian groups, humanitarian non-governmental organizations or NGOs, um, contracts to to rebuild what it just blew up. And Haiti is a very similar case. The United States in Haiti uh, uh, implemented an explicit policy of bypassing Haitian governments and standing up what are now known as NGOs, in its place, and when this policy was was uh, first concocted in the 1970s and, and 1980s, um, there were good reasons for doing so in Haiti, namely that Haiti was ruled by a dictator, Jean Claude Baby Doc Duvalier. But of course, that he was a dictator who had uh, remained in power with often direct uh, U.S. support. So you know, this didn't happen in a vacuum.
14: Well, in terms of the NGOs. I guess I have a chicken and an egg question for you. I think some people in the United States would say the whole reason we need to stand up these outside organizations inside a country like Haiti or a country like Afghanistan is because the governments inside those countries are not necessarily trustworthy that, you know, there's corruption and graft and if we are instead filtering our money through third parties, maybe more of it will get to the people who need it. What would you say to that?
13: Um, I would say that that is a sensible reaction in theory, but it doesn't really jibe with the evidence on the ground.
14: Why not? If it
13: was the case that there was sort of this endemic corruption and the United States is trying to, and, and you know, uh, foreign NGOs are just trying to work their way around it, then you would expect that at the very least, once the United States got involved, corruption would get
14: better, right? So you're saying the corruption came with U.S. involvement, was a byproduct of it.
13: Absolutely. You know, corruption is often talked about as this excuse for why you can't give money to Haitians. But then we then end up making Haiti a more corrupt place than it was before. And and our best friends in Haiti, in terms of, of, of the US government and US power players, are this very tiny Haitian elite who have their hands in all kinds of violence and you know, probably drug trafficking and just really, really nasty stuff. Um, so we're 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 kind of talking out of both sides of our mouths when we say, like, oh, well, Haiti's too corrupt. That's their that's what their problem is.
14: To me, it's been interesting over the last couple of weeks to see how that corruption has trickled down to like very local politicians who are now responding to the disaster on the ground. And when I say the corruption trickled down, I just mean the atmosphere where people feel like it's corrupt and so they don't trust their institutions. Like the Washington Post had this article and it ended with this kind of devastating scene of a mayor who was saying, you know, no one trusts us to rebuild for them because they've kind of, they've been to this movie before. People think I'm holding back help from them and I'm afraid for myself And he said, you know, take me in your helicopter. I'm ready to go to Miami. Like, get me out of here.
13: Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is that I, and I don't know specifically the the person that you're uh, referring to, but, um, I very much doubt that they were elected because there were no local elections held basically for the last 10 years. Anybody who's in a position of power, even in a local city, um, was probably appointed to the job by Jovenel Moise, who again was assassinated Mm -hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. But yes, look, there is great, great. Mistrust, but again, I think it's important to understand the extent to which that is a feature and not a bug of this system. If you are just, you know, a, a Haitian farmer in 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 you know Grand Anse, the Department of the South, the, the areas that were hit by this latest earthquake, um, and and you're just, you know, you're just trying to to provide for your family. Yeah, I wouldn't trust anybody because because people have been taking things from you your entire life and they've been giving you very little. They've been making big promises um, that 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 they don't keep.
14: If the U.S. was doing this the right way, and I guess I should say its partner countries as well, what would that look like?
13: Honestly, the biggest thing is just to put money in Haitians' hands. And I don't mean the Haitian government. I don't mean, you know, the Haitian elite. Put money in people's hands so that they can rebuild their own lives in in, in the best way that they see fit. Haitians can do it. Um, they just need the money and the resources and the time to, to, to do it.
1: We've just heard clips today, starting with Consider This, giving an overview of the situation on the border. The Majority Report discussed Biden's reaction and what we should be doing if public health were really at the top of our priority list. In the Thick detailed the deeply inhumane system we have in place. Al Jazeera English reported on racism experienced by Haitians in Chile, because... Of course, we don't have a monopoly on discrimination. What Next, in two parts, discussed how aid money is often spent when well-meaning people donate to a disaster like the Haitian earthquake and what should be done instead, and on the media looked at the history and framing of Haiti with an eye towards creating new narratives. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the United States of Anxiety, which took some time to debunk... And I hate to even have to say this, the idea that Haiti is suffering from a voodoo curse rather than... You know racism and colonialism like everyone else. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleftcom slash support, or request a financial hardship membership, because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll be putting voicemails and messages on hold again today, because I want to talk about a portion of this border story that may very well have been the only thing you heard about the border before today. This story brought a lot of attention to the border and warrants a bit of media analysis, I think. What I'm talking about, of course, is the viral photos taken at the border crossing where Haitians were wading through the river and were met by border guards on horseback. And the border guards had extremely long, reins or straps or something like that sort of streaming from their horses, and the photographs made it appear that the reins were being used as either weapons or crowd control devices. It was unclear, but the initial reports that came out stated definitively that the border guards were using whips. On Haitian asylum seekers. That claim was later revised down to the idea that the whips actually weren't present. They, they aren't whips, they're reins, and the reins were being used as whips. And it was at about this time that the photographer who took those shots was interviewed and quotes were released stating from that person that they had not seen anyone being whipped. And so finally, the claim was ultimately downgraded to what you heard in the show today. Horse reins were being used for intimidation by sort of spinning and swinging them in the direction of the people crossing the river. Maybe not, you know, making contact. It's, it's hard to know for sure one way or the other. Unsurprisingly, conservative media went wild on this story, uh, saying that left-wing and mainstream media were lying and creating a hoax and intentionally trying to make border guards look inhumane. You know, the the initial pictures that came out were a little unclear, you know, it certainly certainly elicited the idea of whips being used and so You can understand why people went that way, but you can also be super frustrated that the journalism wasn't done well enough to get it right the first time. And my initial thoughts on this were to use it as an example of a debate you should simply avoid getting into at all costs, you know, debating whether they were whips or if reins were used as whips reframes the discussion in a completely useless way, primarily because it doesn't matter. If we allow that to be the debate, then it gives the impression that the humaneness of our policy can be determined by just figuring out whether whips were used or not. And in reality, our policy is horrific with or without whips or whether reins were used as whips or spun or used threateningly. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So if we start from a premise of understanding that this is a completely disingenuous debate that gets us nowhere then we see that it's it's a distraction that tries to distract from the bigger picture of our policies. Our policies are 95% of the problem, and to focus on the 5% of the problem, which is the individual actions of individual border guards, is effectively worthless. But that's what elicits an emotional response, etc. So it, it is, again, understandable why people reacted strongly to those photos, but... Still frustrating. Uh, However, there is an impact of this bad debate to be aware of that does actually matter because the way we talk about things impacts how people feel about it. And theoretically, in a democracy, the way people feel about things can change the policies of the country. So if a story like this is gotten wrong initially, which this one seems to have been, it opens the opportunity to lose the narrative as sort of happened, or at least what the right is trying to do is to subvert the narrative and make it all about the left and mainstream media is lying about whips, as if that's the biggest concern we should be worried about right now. And then when there is this sort of fighting and when journalists seem to have gotten something wrong, it can turn off relatively low information voters who are susceptible to the argument that the media lies and makes things up. And so any example of the media getting something wrong will be used to hammer home the point that the media doesn't make mistakes. They intentionally mislead. And so that's something to be avoided at almost all cost. And so this was the series of thoughts that were sort of swirling in response to this news story. And the conclusion then is, okay, so what do we do? Journalism, be good. News consumers, beware. Policies, be best. Right? You know, it's not very groundbreaking. I didn't know that I had something important or or deeply additive to say until Amanda, we were talking about this, and she was able to connect a couple of dots for me that really drove it home. So, What is going to help drive this conclusion home is this. It is not just about the distraction of the disingenuous debate, and it's not just about criticizing the media in the hopes that they'll do better next time. It's also about understanding the dynamics that allow this kind of scenario to play out the way it has. So it's important to understand that there is an unreasonable double standard at play due to mainstream journalism's attempt to adhere to the truth. We put a lot of Weight and value on the truth. And so we actually get held to a higher standard. As a quick counterexample, let's listen to Tucker Carlson, the most popular host on the most popular channel for conservatives. And here he is being interviewed quite recently on a show from Glenn Beck's network, The Blaze. When you have to cover some idiotic thing that Stelter said, or Cuomo, just these these clown people, when you have
13: to cover it, right? Or Don Lamont, as you call him. Like, what? how do you think they live with themselves at this point when they just lie again and again? And we have the internet to expose the lies. If this isn't 20 years ago when you were on CNN, yeah. and, we, and we couldn't expose things, we can expose it now and
10: they still do it. Well, it's, I guess I would ask myself, like, I mean i lie if i'm really cornered or something i lie i really try not to i try never to lie on tv i try i just don't you know i don't like lying i certainly do it you know out of weakness or whatever
1: so he admits to lying very blatantly and clearly but he does it in a way that you know he he sort of sounds like he wants to get credit for it like like moral credit For admitting to lying, because, and what makes this make sense is if you understand their perspective as conservatives, is that they believe, or at least tell their audiences that they believe, that the mainstream media and left wing media intentionally lies all the time, but won't admit it. And so a conservative host who also lies all the time, but can admit it, puts them on a higher moral plane. That's my interpretation of how and why Tucker Carlson could, in an interview, admit to lying on television and feel pretty comfortable that he wouldn't lose credibility for for doing that, which is a strange position to be in. But, But don't think that it's just a casual comment he made once. Fox News also argued that Carlson is a liar in court documents. So here's a little bit from an NPR article on a lawsuit against Tucker Carlson, for slander. It's titled, You Literally Can't Believe the Facts Tucker Carlson Tells You, So Says Fox's Lawyers, published September ninth, 2020. The article reads, quote, Now comes the claim that you can't expect to literally believe the words that come out of Carlson's mouth, and that assertion is not coming from Carlson's critics. It's being made by a federal judge in the Southern District of New York and by Fox News' own lawyers in defending Carlson against accusations of slander. It worked, by the way. Just read the U.S. District judge's opinion, leaning heavily on the arguments of Fox's lawyers. The, quote, General tenor of the show should then inform a viewer that Carlson is not, quote, stating actual facts about the topics he discusses and is instead engaging in, quote, exaggeration and, quote, non-literal commentary. The judge wrote, quote, Fox persuasively argues that given Mr. Carlson's reputation, any reasonable viewer arrives with an appropriate amount of skepticism about the statements he makes, unquote. And of course, the problem is he doesn't have any reasonable viewers, so he's being protected from slander. They won. Fox News and Tucker Carlson won the case, defending Tucker Carlson against accusations of slander based on the premise that he can't be believed, and that's why any statements he made that were slanderous are not actionable. So here's the main point. This whole media fight over truth and standards is the result of a power dynamic playing out in the media. When you can convince your viewers that journalistic truth is actually lies and journalistic mistakes are also actually malicious lies, then you can say just about anything as long as your audience agrees with you because they'll never believe any fact-checkers who challenge the falsehoods that you state. So in a fight over political ideologies, which is the status quo for all politics and political media, those who care about drawing on actual reality to form their opinions have to work twice as hard to be believed Half as much. And a lot of people on the left are already well acquainted with that concept because they live it in their professional lives every day. This isn't new or exclusive to media. The entrenched power system gets the presumption of honesty and competency wherever it is, while those without power are questioned and presumed incompetent from the start, creating a structural imbalance. If you have power, all you have to do is defend it. You're inside the castle, not storming the castle. And if your followers have the same vested interest in maintaining the current power dynamics, then convincing them that everyone else is lying is something they're eager to believe. Then you can defend your collective position of power with whatever lies you like. You can even admit it in public and in court documents that you lie and never worry about being held to account or even losing the trust of your audience. On the flip side of the power dynamic, if you attempt to stand up for asylum seekers wading through a waist-deep river with their possessions in plastic bags who are being menaced by border guards on horses, but you misinterpret reins as whips, then you will be held to the highest possible standards. That bad reporting will be used to reinforce the idea of the fake news media out to get you and justify our inhumane immigration system all in one seamless movement. So maybe my conclusion still just has to be something about how the media needs to do better. But it's important to understand why. Truth is at a structural disadvantage, in some ways that are new and others that are old, but complaining about it is not the point, nor is it enough. We all need to hold on desperately to truth, from media company executives all the way down to the casual news consumer scrolling a news feed looking for something to post on their social media. The proliferation of lies, disinformation, misinformation, and plain old reporting mistakes all collectively work to benefit those who are least interested in truth. It's part of a concept called the liar's dividend. Basically, those who are willing to lie can benefit the most from a growing collective uncertainty about what is true. There are those who know this and actively peddle disinformation as much as possible. Those interested in truth have an obligation, at the very least, to not even inadvertently add to this phenomenon with subpar reporting or thoughtless sharing of dubious information on social media. And that is why the story of the whips and the reins is important, not because it should change a single thing about how any of us should view our border policies. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202 999 3991 or by emailing me to j bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, bonus show co-hosting, and so on and thanks of course to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoflef.com support or from right inside the apple Podcasts app membership is how you get instant access to all of our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes